Hey, I want to start off, you know, today by just thanking publicly Brad Nelson for coming in last week and speaking. Didn't he do a great job? You know, Brad is amazing. He, he's such a brilliant man, but his heart after Jesus is just as powerful. If you get a chance to talk to him or interact with him, and many of you have asked me again, where do I get the historical background and information that we're going through in addition to the trip that I went on that he was on? Uh, he has a ministry along with Brad Gray called Walking the Text. And so there's this background and, and from geography to archaeology to history that can help some of the passages that we read come to life or uh, helps explain them a little bit more. So I just want to encourage you, you know, along those lines. But I don't know about you, but I was so moved uh, by hearing him tell the testimony of his 13-year-old daughter uh, where she was here. You know, in Spokane, in this little known place of the world, and God moved in her heart, and she remembered how significant that was. And it just reminds me again that God is up to something. He's up to something. Not only do we get a front row seat, but we get to be a part of it uh, as we continue to engage in what he's calling us to be and do. Now, one of the reasons I was gone last weekend is because uh, my oldest son decided to get engaged. So uh, my oldest son is now engaged. So wasn't going to miss that for the world. And then he decided to give me and his mom a heart attack uh, because he says he wants to get married in June, this June, uh, to which we responded to him. You do know that your younger brother is graduating in June. And he's like, yeah. And I'm like, okay, so sucks to be us. Got it. You know, uh, within a week of each other, we're going to have a graduation, you know, as well as a wedding. So lots going on in the Shields household. Speaking of household announcements. Here at VRL, there's a bunch of things going on. Boom, like that segue? That was good. Uh, DNA is happening today. So if you want to know what's, what it's like to be a part of a church family, what your next step is in your relationship with Jesus, it's just a couple hours. We do this once every few months. Today's a great day. There's no football on. We choose this day intentionally. It's rainy outside. There's nothing you're going to be doing anyway. So come anyway. So there's over 50 people signed up. You don't need to sign up. Just show up. Child care provided, you know, at this point. Love to see you there. Now, when we started this series, you know, called Dear Church, we we're looking at the book of Revelations, chapters one through three, and in chapter one, if you're a follower of Jesus, it should have caused us to step back a little bit because John and Jesus calls us priests, all of us, not just the pastor, all of us. He says in Revelation 1, 6, he has made us a kingdom of priests for God and his father. And so what does that mean for us? Priests go to God on behalf of others, and as Jeff mentioned, Thank you. We have doubled our prayer requests that you are giving on behalf of other people, especially. It's okay to pray for yourself, but every week, make it a challenge, if you're a Christian, to write a prayer request down, do the QR code, and allow us to pray on that person's behalf. Secondly, priests go to others on behalf of God, which is why we're encouraging you. Maybe you're here today because somebody invited you. That's what we're called to do. Live as Jesus is called to live outside these walls, which leads us to number three. Priests bring sacrifices to God. That's what priests are called to do. We're supposed to bring sacrifices, and the first sacrifice is ourselves. We're supposed to be a living sacrifice. In other words, my life is yours, God. You lead your way, your will, not mine, and help me align to you. But secondly, we're challenged in God's word, and not animal sacrifice, but actually to bring a sacrifice of praise. So we've been encouraging you to say, come early so that you're ready when worship starts, whether you like singing or not. It's not about singing. It's about, God, I am giving you a sacrifice, and I'm going to sing to your name. I'm going to sing how worthy you are, which is what we just did a few minutes ago. So just thanks for doing that. I want to continue for us to have that kind of be a mantra of who we are. Lastly, uh, I'm going to add one more. It's not in the Bible, but I'm adding one more. If you are a priest, uh, we make room for others. 
And what I mean by that is uh, uh, we are running out of room. So those of you who are in, in our overflow, you know, right now, thanks for being here, you know, today. Uh, sorry we couldn't get you in here at this time. And so I want to encourage those of you who can to make a shift to 8 o'clock or Thursday. Now, I can encourage you as priests to do it in Jesus' name, but many of you are not mature in your faith yet. So let me give you donuts. You know, how about donuts or pizza, okay? And some of you are like, okay, I'm in. That's all I needed. I needed food. And so, which is really funny to me because it says free slice. It really is one slice of pizza is all you get. That's all we can afford. So one slice of pizza, you know, no soup for you, you know, uh, is all you get. Uh, or you can come at 8 o'clock, you know, for donuts. And I know it's early and I know it's a sacrifice, but that's what priests do as well. But again, go where your friends go. That's what's most important. So I just want to encourage you as God continues to bring people, we want to continue to make room for the people that God is. Is bringing. With all that said, welcome to week four of this series called Dear Church, where we're looking at the churches that Jesus is talking to that applies to all churches everywhere, and today we get to talk about Sardis and the church in Sardis. Now, with that, again, Sardis is located in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. You can see of the seven churches, it's right dead in the center. A lot of the cities, you know, kind of went through Sardis. Uh, what made Sardis stand out was actually its resources. Um, Pactolas is uh, the name of the river that ran through Sardis and it actually provided gold so abundant and precious metals you could just pan it out of the river. In fact, what's fascinating about Sardis, if you want to just look at you know, Google in, his, in history, the first minted coinage actually came out of this little known place of Sardis that became the monetary way to do business started here. It actually started under Croesus in 550 BC, and because of that way and that monetary coins that were these that you, examples that you see, that way allowed Cretus to build one of the seven ancient wonders of the world called the Temple of Artemis in Ephesus that Brad talked about last week. Now, Sardis is interesting because it was almost like Sardis was divided into two cities. One was the upper Sardis, and you can see remnants of what remains because it was very fortified. So whenever people try to come and attack Sardis, they're like, we'll just go to our upper part of our city because you can't make your way with your army to the top of this mountain. And I took this picture from below so you can kind of see how steep it was. And even though this is today, it was very, very steep back then. Now, uh, the lower part of Sardis is where the temple and a lot of the city engagement took place, where Artemis, a smaller version of what was in Ephesus, you know, took place. Now, Sardis is also known for the production of clothing in that day called Hamitian. Hamitian uh, is the outer garment that the people wore for that day. And it's important, this background about what we're about to read that Jesus says. Sardis also, interestingly enough, had a large Jewish population. Probably 20% of the 60 to 100,000 people that lived in Sardis of the day were Jewish. And one of the reasons was is because when Jews got taken over by Babylon, even before the Romans, they got taken to this region and many of them ended up in Sardis. In fact, this is what the Old Testament Jeremiah, the prophet, actually said to the people. It says, this is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says to all the captives. He is exiled to Babylon from Jerusalem, to which we know a good percent ended up in Sardis. Build homes and plan to stay. Plant gardens and eat the food they produce. Marry and have children. Then find spouses for them so that you may have many grandchildren. Multiply. Do not dwindle away and work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it. Its welfare will determine your welfare. So it's, it's, it's saying, hey, let's get along. But there's a point when you get along that you can go from getting along to compromising your faith. 
Because if you, research has showed us that Sardis, when they did some of the archaeology, it actually found one of the largest and wealthiest synagogues, you know, in the history of the ancient world is actually in Sardis. It's beautiful to see what's happened. And what's interesting about the synagogue is it was located in the heart of the city, which was very unusual. Most of the synagogues were on the outskirts. So it made you wonder, okay, what did they have to do? How did they have to maybe compromise in order to get this location? Here's what we also know. It was almost uh, directly attached to the gymnasium or specifically called the bathhouse. Now, the bathhouse, this one that you see, is uh, actually over five acres in size. This thing was just massive. Now, for those of you who don't know, bathhouses was a common place where they did business, not just get themselves clean. So they actually did a lot of business there, but it was also the place where the greatest sexual promiscuity and whatever anybody wanted to do actually took place in the bathhouses, and it was deemed as okay. In addition to that, they had the games, the gyms, you know, for things like wrestling and other athletic events. Now, what's interesting about uh, Sardis is it was conquered twice uh, in its history because they were so uh, overconfident in their location. The Greek historian Herodotus tells the story of the fall of Sardis in the days of King Cyrus in 539 BC. Now, that's from a non-biblical author who's writing about what I'm about to tell you. But what's interesting is King Cyrus ends up in our Bible. And you can read about him and maybe what happened there in Isaiah chapter 45, verses 1 through 3 on your own. But what we read from this you know, Greek historian is he offered a rich reward to any soldier who could find a way to conquer the city. Well, one soldier one day was looking up and he saw one of the soldiers at Sardis drop his helmet all the way down. And then he noticed that this soldier made his way down through a hidden pathway and found his helmet and then made his way back up. The soldier recounted and, and followed closely where it was. And that very same night, they marched an army up to the top of Sardis. And to their shock, Sardis was not even being guarded. There was only a few soldiers that was actually even around because they had such overconfidence in their high position that they thought they would never be conquered. Interestingly enough, they didn't learn from this first time. 200 years later, when Anarchus, you know, came, came in, he also overwhelmed the city through the, exactly the same way that it had, had fallen 200 years earlier. One last thing. In 17 AD, there was a ginormous earthquake in all of Turkey. Decimated so many things like the Temple of Artemis, which is why we see the ruins that are there today. And then what's interesting is if you go there today, you will see in the background this different structure that was built probably 40, 50, 60, maybe 20 or 70 years later at the time of this writing. If you go closer into the structure, you find out that it's a church. And wouldn't it be like God to build his church on the idol of the God of Artemis? And that we're seeing that we're writing. Now, was it the church we're about to read? We don't exactly know. But with that as the background, let's read what Jesus has to say to the people of the church in Sardis, so to Christian people, but also applies to us. Write this letter. To the angel of the church in Sardis, this is the message from the one who has the sevenfold spirit of God and the seven stars. I know all the things you do and that you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what little remains for even what is left is almost dead. I find that your actions do not meet the requirements of my God. Go back to what you heard and believed at first, hold it to it firmly, repent and turn to me again. If you don't wake up, I will come to you suddenly as unexpected as a thief. 
Yet there are some in the church in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes with evil. They will walk with me in white for they're worthy. All who are victorious will be clothed in white. I will never erase their names from the book of life. But I will announce before my father and his angels that they are mine. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the spirit and understand what he is saying again to the churches. So this applies to us even today, not just to the church in Sardis. Now with all that said, let me just prepare your hearts and minds for this. Of all the seven churches, this is probably the one that most represents or should be told to the church in America. Up until this point, we've talked about a lot of churches that are suffering persecution because they're standing up for their faith. They're dying you know, through crucifixion, being boiled alive. Not Sardis and not us today. In fact, it was a hard week kind of walking through this, but I need you to understand that as we go through this and we hear the words of Jesus that may apply to us as a church, may apply, for sure applies to us as a church in America, and may apply to us individually, that I want to remind you of this, that Jesus only disciplines those he loves. It's out of love. It's not out of shame and scorn. It's actually out of care. In fact, he says, my child, don't make light of the Lord's discipline. Don't give up when he corrects you. For the Lord disciplines those he loves. That's why he's talking to the church in Sardis. That's why he talks to us. And he punishes each one he accepts as his child. So let me boil it down to us. What is the issue? The issue is what's on the outside, what's being presented by the people in the church in Sardis, doesn't come close to what's reality on the inside. So they're presenting something that makes them feel like they are alive. In fact, Revelation says this, I know the things that you do, Jesus says, that you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. And this is one of the things that we need to examine in our own hearts as well as our own churches. Now, you may have heard this phrase, faith without works is dead, but so is works without deep faith. That's what he's saying there. So let's unpack that. What appears on the outside is different than what's on the inside. Individuals and churches can be very busy by the things that we do. And the things that we do may not reflect what our connection with him is going on. So we can find ourselves checking the box. We go to church, check. We might give financially, check. We are in a life group, check. We serve, check. We do all of these things. And on the outside, it can appear to the world or it can appear to others that we know that things are going really well because we have a reputation that it looks like things are going well, but on the inside, you and I and God know differently. We know that there's things going on on the inside. This is the challenge for anyone who's a follower of Christ, especially in America, because doesn't this reflect our culture? Like we present something that may not be 100% true. Oh, we think it's 100% true, but it's not. I mean, look at our houses. On the outside, things look good. How are things relationally going on the inside? You know, how are things at work? We present ourselves a certain way to our bosses, to other people, and are working out in, in, in where we're, you know, our athletics, or the things that we like on the outside, or my favorite, social media. Oh, we present a great picture. Look at our family photos and look at what's going on, but yet what's really going on? And it's so easy for us to adopt that same idea when it comes to our church or our connection to him. And I need you to know that one of my greatest fears as a lead pastor is that I become a statistic, like one of those other mega church pastors that we read about. 
And I begin to wonder, I'm like, what in the world happened? Because there's people who are, you know, they, you look at them and on the outside, they look like they're doing well. They preach fantastic sermons. Their churches are doing amazing things for the Lord. And then all of a sudden, as if it comes out of the blue, everything comes tumbling down. And so what is that? What is that? And, and just so you know, that's a healthy fear of mine. As long as I continue to have that, it's not like a, an anxiety or something like that. It's just something that actually makes me, you know, check my heart and make sure I'm wondering, what am I doing and what is the motivation behind some of it? Because the core of this persona is hypocrisy and pride. That's actually what drives this. In fact, it's interesting because it's the same warning that Jesus gave to the religious leaders that Jewish people would look at and be like, no, they got it all together. Look at what they're doing and how dedicated they are in living, but Jesus knew different on the inside. See, in Matthew 23, Jesus says this, what sorrow awaits you teachers of the religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs. So imagine just going to a cemetery and seeing how beautiful these cemeteries are, whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, but filled on the inside with dead people's bones and all sorts of impurity. Outwardly, you look like righteous people, but inwardly, your hearts are filled with hypocrisy and lawlessness. And this is the warning for us today. Because, now, I need to help you understand, though, the, we throw out this word, hypocrite, all the time. We live in a gotcha culture. Well, when we catch somebody doing something that they have not ascribed to themselves, it doesn't match up, we're like, gotcha, hypocrite. You're like, no, not necessarily. In fact, in most times, they made a mistake. They, made, they sinned, they fell, but it doesn't make them a hypocrite. It means they're imperfect. Like, for example, uh, moms. Okay, let me just put you on the, uh, out there for just a second. Most all of you are incredible moms. But have you ever had a bad moment? Have you ever had a bad day and somebody catches you in that moment? Does that negate and say, you know what? You're a terrible, hypocritical mom. You're awful. How dare you? You're like, what are you talking about? The person had a bad moment and a bad day that doesn't make them a hypocrite. Okay, for those of you guys who like to work out, ever been caught eating Cheetos? <laughs> yeah, hypocrite. You know, you're like, no, had a bad moment. I had a weak moment. You know, in fact, if I were to take it even a step further, we see Peter in the Bible deny Christ. We see Abraham struggle in his faith. We see David have an affair and kill a guy, and God says, that's a man after my own heart. Doesn't, doesn't make them hypocrites. It makes them you know, have flaws. It makes them sin. It makes them fall short. It makes them make mistakes or a failure in the moment, but it doesn't mean hypocrite. The word hypocrite is from the Greek word that literally means play actor. Someone who consistently wears a mask. Think right now of your favorite TV character. Think of your favorite movie character. Okay, I'm thinking of uh, Matt Damon and Jason Bourne. Okay, if I meet him, he's not going to feel like Jason Bourne. He's going to feel like somebody else. Why? Because he was playing a character, and that's all that I know is the character in which he plays. And this is what he's talking about. A hypocrite is someone pretending regularly to be something that he or she is not. So as it relates to this letter, a person who acts consistently in contradiction to what they say they believe. They appear like they're doing everything right. That their church and their spiritual lives are great. But Jesus says, nope, something wrong on the inside. 
and you're not matching that, which makes you a hypocrite. Now, the word pride is the driver to hypocrisy. I don't know if you ever realized that. Pride goes before destruction, a haughtiness before a fall. The word pride in the Hebrew is the word ga'an, and it means to be high, to be lifted up. So you rise above everyone and everything around you, meaning that uh, you are looking down in proportional relation to where you are, and the further that you rise up with that mentality, you begin to find cracks, you begin to break, and eventually you'll come crumbling to the ground. It's literally where we get the phrase, the bigger they are, the harder they fall. Think about Sardis again. They were lifted up. They were prideful. They were like, nobody can touch us now. Then all of a sudden, these armies come in because they stopped giving watch and they thought they were above what could actually happen to them. See, pride is creating a gap. That's another way to say it. Between where you see yourself and where you see yourself in relation to other people. And because it's pride, it gives us an, an illustration. The gap is the difference between perception and reality. Let me give you an example. Have you ever met a couple that you're close with and other friends are close with and then one day they come and say, we're getting a divorce and you're stunned and your friends are stunned and everybody's looking like, we didn't see any of this coming because they pretended or gave off a different perception than what was going on, which is hypocrisy, but the drive of that was their pride. They felt embarrassed, they felt alone, they felt shame, they felt something enough for, to not be willing to share the reality of what's going on. So instead of admitting the reality, they just continued to live this facade. That's what Jesus is talking about. The most dangerous thing that we can have as followers of Christ is to have these gaps. Pride will do whatever it's in its power to not allow the gap to be closed Pride stops us from admitting pain. It stops us from admitting weakness. It stops us especially from admitting failure. Guilty as charged. I can't tell you, you know, how many times in my life that it's embarrassing is what it feels like to me to admit to my wife when I've made mistakes, to admit to you that I've made mistakes, to admit to close people around me that I've made mistakes and failure because I'm like, I should be or I think of. I'm like, no, that's pride. And the longer I live in that, the more it starts creating the gap and it gets wider and wider. There have been weekends where things have not gone well in the Shields household, and yet I still need to preach, but I can feel something different from what I'm giving you than what's going on on the inside, which is why I'm so grateful that I have people in my life, especially these guys on Tuesday morning, that I can say, here's what I'm really going through, and that they can love and support and help me. For some of you, you're struggling today. And you're struggling because this is true in your life. You're dealing with a pain. You're dealing with a secret. And you've put on a great face on the outside. But God sees. He knows. He loves. He wants to call it out in you today to be honest and vulnerable for him and before other people. So how do we know? Let me ask you this question. Where does your reputation not match your spiritual connection? Where's the disconnects? Where's the gap? Uh, one of the ways you can figure that out is figuring out what you're going through the motions spiritually, right? And many of, many of you have been Christians for a while. And so you can find yourself going through the motions of like, I'm here at church. Here I am. 
I'm at church again. There's not a lot of life. I'm just here. Uh, one of the things to, to be able to ask, ask you is, when's the last time that you proclaimed something that God was doing in your life or through your life? This is where churches find themselves uh, at odds, where they start talking more about the past and the testimonies of the past instead of what God's doing in the present. We always want to praise God for what God's doing in the past, but I've been to so many churches where I'm talking to people like, oh yeah, 10 years ago, we were amazing and we did these incredible things for God. I'm like, amen, what's God doing today? And the longer that gap is, it can be an indication that maybe we're having some pride, maybe we're having you know, some hypocrisy that may be getting to take root in our lives. Because we have a tendency to live on the successes of our past. Have you ever talked to a Dallas Cowboys fan? <laughs> this is exactly what I'm talking about. Every year, they're the loudest and the most obnoxious, and oh my gosh, this is our year. Let me put reality on the table. Not only have you not been to the Super Bowl, you haven't been to the conference championship since 1996. We're going on 30 years, and all I keep hearing about is Troy Aikman and Emmett Smith and Michael Irvin and Coach Jimmy Johnson, who's barely alive anymore, Brad Pesnell. You got to get some new stuff, you know, that's going on. People who live in the past, oh, Cowboys, we're the greatest America's team. I'm like, oh, come on. You haven't even been anywhere in years. Now, before I go too much further, as Seahawks fans, we haven't been there in 10 years also. So I'm, we're, we're also kind of, kind of looking on the past a little bit. But as a church, we do these things on a regular basis. As we talk about things in the past, which is great, but what are testimonies of the present in your own spiritual life? What is God doing now? Where are you alive now? Or do you find yourself going through the motions? I go to church because it's, Routine, it's habit. Habits aren't bad. They actually can be very good. But they can also become the thing that makes an appearance on the outside and there's something different going on the in. So what's the response? If that's the issue, what's the response that Jesus gives? He says very strongly, wake up, get strong, and turn back to me. That's what he's saying. And he literally says those words in verse two, wake up, wake up by admitting what's really going on. This is where reality can come in. This is where the gap can begin to be shortened. Who knows the real you? Is there anybody in your life that knows the real you that you're open to be honest with, even in your failures? To be able to say, this is what's going on. Life breeds life just like death breeds death. So do you have somebody that you can talk to? I'll never forget, I was at a pastors, you know, even conference and weekend, and I was feeling this tension. There were some things going on in my life, and I was trying to be a pastor at the same time, and the pastor got up just like I am now and just gave this heartfelt message to be like, no, 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 shorten the gap, come back to God, be authentic, be real, be able to confess it's time to wake up, and I just found myself finally breaking into tears and being able to talk to somebody and walk through what was going on in my soul that was not matching my witness. And all of us are gonna be there at times. The key is don't let the gap, when those times happen, not if, to continue to widen because the wider it gets, the heavier it will feel in your life and you will find it being harder and harder to play Christian than it is to be a follower of him. So he says, strengthen what little remains. For even what is le left is almost dead. I find that your actions do not meet the requirements of my God. And this is how we strengthen. 
Go back to what you heard and believed at first. Hold it firmly. Strengthen your faith by going back to what you first believed. Do you remember when you first believed? For some of you, it's been decades. For those of you, it's been weeks. But do you remember? I have yet to meet someone who's a follow, who became a follower of Christ that didn't have that passion and excitement for him. When you came to Christ, you're like, oh my gosh, it set you free. You can believe the grace and the forgiveness, but there is something that can happen over time that can lessen that. Same thing happens in marriages, you know that. You know, and so you have to continue to renew it. You have to continue to you know, pour into it. You have to continue to allow God to do what only he can do. Let me remind you of what you first came to. In Ephesians chapter two, it says these words, but God is so rich in mercy that he loved us so much that even though we were dead, this is who we were before Christ, we were dead because of our sins. He gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus forever. This is the offering. This is the excitement. This is the passion. This is why when it comes to worship, when it comes to attending church, is there any excitement that's coming from the inside out? Is there any realness? So we strengthen our faith by going back to what we first believed. I remember I was in sixth grade. I was at camp. I'm a pastor's kid. I'm at camp and the youth pastor's on a stage and he's talking about coming to Christ. And I'm like, I've heard this message before. I've heard it before. But for some reason, this one felt different. I was like, I don't know if I've really made this my own. So this is for those of you who teethed on the pew like me, you know, that you grew up in church and you're like, when, when did faith become real for you? Well, it became real for me when I was in sixth grade. And I remember him saying, and if you want to believe in Christ, I'm going to ask you to do a brave thing. I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet. And nobody was standing. I was like, I think I'm supposed to be standing. I didn't want to stand, but I was like, nope, I need to. And I stood. I didn't allow the embarrassment or the perception of me being a pastor's kid stopping me from receiving Christ truly as my own, not just what I was raised with. And my life was different. I remember, you know, uh, even later on in high school, some of the poignant moments of a mission trip experience. They're going to a, a mission conference in Urbana, which is, you know, University of, uh, of Illinois. There's a conference that takes place every three or four years. And going there and really feeling like God was pressing upon my heart, I want you to live for me in vocational ministry the rest of your life. I remember those moments and those, those markers. Do you remember yours? Do you remember the moment you came to Christ? Do you remember the, the spiritual you know, uh, markers? Because that's where you strengthen your faith. You have to look back is what Jesus says. Remember, remember what you first came to. Remember how I've worked in your life. Do you remember that excitement, that passion, and that commitment? Knowing the feelings go up and they go down on a regular basis. So we wake up, we get strong, we turn back to him. Then he says in verse three, repent and turn to me again. If you don't wake up, I will come to you suddenly as an unexpected, as a thief. Now you know why he's writing to Sardis. Because they know that it could all come crumbling down in a moment. So be on watch, be on guard, be ready to repent and return to what we first committed to. God is calling you now. He is calling you today to not allow the culture to define your connection with him, but allow your connection with him to change the culture. That's what he's warning the people of Sardis, that you have compromised so much that people can't tell the difference between you and those who don't believe in me. And so he's saying where you're going to wake up is by admitting where we might not have the interconnection connected to what's going on on the outside. But I want to finish with an encouragement because Jesus finishes with encouragement. 
He says, we've talked about here's the issue, here's the response, now here's the reward. We get to walk with Jesus in victory. We do these things. He says, yet there are some in the church in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes with evil. Soiled clothes just means compromise. And he says, uh, they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. He's referring to the clothing in which they produce that he's now saying you get to get brand new clothes. By turning to him, we get to walk with Jesus in a deep abiding relationship with him. And he says, all who are victorious will be clothed in white. White represents purity and victory in Jesus. And the coolest part, you don't get to pick out your own clothes. He provides it. Based on his forgiveness, his mercy, his conquering the grave, he says, here's the clothes I'm going to give to you. And he says, I will never erase their names from the book of life, but I will announce before my father and his angels that they are mine. Jesus will announce for all time, before all people, your name specifically. It's like a graduation ceremony on steroids. And people are gonna go nuts, you know, when they, you get to hear your name called before all people. So what is your response to Jesus on this day? The greatest thing that you and I can do is to be honest. Knowing that our culture wants us to put on the face because that's what the culture pushes, but to say, no, we're gonna be transparent and vulnerable. So what I wanna do is I wanna end with what I believe our church is really about. What I believe represents when someone gets honest with what's going on, how the church can truly be the church in both word and deed. So go ahead and check out the screen with me now. We thought we were members of the church, but we weren't really involved in a small group and our life, our relationship with God didn't really go um, much beyond the service. Emerson was diagnosed with cancer when she was four years old and her tumor had grown inside of her kidney. I just had a general feeling of hopelessness. Why is our daughter encountering such a terrible thing at such a young age? I went to the floor and I just begged for um, for him to just to show up. And I felt like, you know, is now's the time that that I'm gonna meet you, you know, and we're gonna gonna build this relationship. Like, can it be now? We started to have uh, members of the church reach out for for us. The first one was Brad. He just always seemed to call at the right time, and we always had 10 or 15 minutes, and he would just let us know that the church was thinking about us. We had met these friends at church, and we're talking, and they're like, oh yeah, we're gonna go check out our house. It's almost done, we're moving in soon. It turned out that we were neighbors. They stepped in with just so much strength for us when we didn't have any, and they took it upon themselves to just share our story and I remember a 4th of July basket showing up on our doorstep. I mean, who thinks of that? Trevor brought VRL Kids Camp to Emerson at the hospital and he's like, I just knew I needed to come here. I had to quit my job. Alex took a leave of absence and we left everything for six months and the church provided meals for us while we were over there, a mortgage payment for our house. Everything that we didn't know we needed was provided. It was a light. It was just, it was God's light. If there's hell on earth, then absolutely the bone marrow transplant floor at Seattle Children's is it. We got one of the comic book Bibles. Every night before we go to bed, we would read, you know, a couple pages out of that. And I was like, huh, all right, I'm learning probably more than she is from this Bible. Really gave me the strength, uh, strength as a father, strength as a husband to lead our family. I could lead Emerson, I could lead the other girls and be uh, the foundation that God wanted me to be for our family. 
we are in kingdom order now like never before. We are busy teaching our girls to take everything to the cross. We do not miss a Sunday if we can help it. And if we know we're gonna miss it, then we're gonna be there on a Thursday. Before Emerson's diagnosis, we wanted to join a small group, but it wasn't really convenient. And we both have full-time jobs and there'll be a, a right time. And we never um, fulfilled that. And now we have, and we've committed and we, make that a priority you know on this day we we're not working late we're making it we have a babysitter it's just we're never we're not going to miss it because it's made such a change in our lives it is incredibly easy now to just bring god to the center of our household and, and guide us uh, through this life and on this journey We gather as a church every week, but that is the church, is when we're in each other's lives, and, and I'm fully aware that when it's something outward, like medical, uh, it, it can sometimes be easier to come along and help. When what we're talking about today isn't just the physical, it's the internal, where we actually have to be vulnerable to say, yeah, I, I have some mistakes, I have some failures, I am presenting myself as something that I'm really not on a consistent basis. All of us fail, all of us make mistakes. And so for those of you who are not a Christian, I know it's hard. It's hard trying to live up to whatever perception you think you're supposed to live up to. Whether it be the ones that your parents put on you or the ones that you put on yourself. And what Jesus is offering is come as you are. He sees exactly who you are. And he loves you in spite of you. And he asks you to come. And for those of us who have been living and find this tension inside of us and your heart's pounding even right now as you recognize, yeah, there's some major hypocritic areas in my life. He's asking you to be open with someone this week. Someone that you'd be willing to sit down and talk to. Someone that you'd be willing to say, yep, this is actually what's going on. And I know it'll be hard especially if you've disappointed someone or hurt someone, it can be very hard to have that honest conversation, but I can tell you and promise you this, it will be freeing after it's hard. And you'll find yourself going, okay, God already knows. We're not, we're not fooling anybody. And like I said, this could be the moment, the opportunity, the most significant part of your year could be right now. Because God knows you already. All he's asking is that for you to admit where you're really at in relationship with him. And to come to him just like the prodigal son and turn back, he doesn't bring shame. He doesn't say, I told you so. He doesn't do that. He says, thank you. Now let's go on this journey together. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for today and this opportunity. I pray you would lead, guide, and direct our steps. Help us to be honest before you first. Right now, hear the prayers of people in this room, people online, people in overflow. And I pray, Father, that you would just allow us to then allow somebody else to know just what's going on. Heal us, lead us, forgive us as you always do because your mercies are new every morning. If there's anybody here who's not yet received you, may this be the moment, opportunity to say, yes, Jesus, I choose to follow you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.